You're listening to the Monumental Me Mindshare Podcast. We're collecting stories and having conversations with real people who inspire us to thrive in life. Thinkers and doers and people like you. This is Liana Slater of Monumental Me. Today, I'm talking to Lydia Bennett. Lydia is the author of the widely acclaimed book, The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You. She speaks internationally about sales and empowering women in the workplace. Lydia is also global managing director and lead charity auctioneer at Christie's, a major international auction house. She's also a wife and the mother of three. Originally from Louisiana, Lydia has been a New Yorker for over 20 years, and we'll touch on why that matters. But we'll talk more about how you can harness your power and really useful topics such as setting goals, public speaking, negotiating and asking for what you want and what you're worth, and the power of community. Thanks for joining us. Well, first and foremost, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I'm such a fan, so I really appreciate the opportunity to be on here and discuss my favorite topic. So as you said, I wrote a book called The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You, which is a very strong title because I wanted people to know that every single one of us has the opportunity and the ability to own our power and live the life that we want to live. I wrote the book really because as a charity auctioneer for Christie's, which is a job that I've had for 16 years, I get on stage in front of thousands of people in a pre and hopefully post pandemic world on a nightly basis and try to raise money for nonprofits. And for years, every single time I was standing backstage or right after I got off stage, there was a person, usually a woman, who would say something like, I could never do what you do. I could never in a million years stand on stage. I don't have the confidence to do that. I hate asking people for things. I hate selling things. I hate pulling my, putting myself out there. And it was this litany of things that they couldn't do. Mm. And to me, that just seemed like a white space. And I love to write. And I just started to write to that point. You know, where did this confidence on stage come from? How did it pull through from stage and eventually go into my full-time job and into my life? And what could I do to give people practical tips to do that in their own life? And I realized that the story really started in my early 20s when, like so many other people, I had that dream of moving to New York. You know, I lived in a fifth floor walk up when I was 21 years old and, you know, did the New York thing where I made no money and really just lived for the experience and the life of being here. But then over a 20 year career, I also learned that there were important things that I'd missed that I should have known in my early 20s to set myself for better success financially, socially, and in all of these different ways. And so that's what the book is meant to do. And I've had so many people of different ages, whether they be 20, 21, just coming out of college, entering the real world, all the way to 50s and 60s who say, you know, this is my story. This is where I am in my life. This is what I want to do. And and that's really what I wanted it to be. That sounds so great. And that is definitely how I read that. So when I asked you to, to talk to me today on the Monumental Me Mindshare podcast, it was really to get your thoughts on resilience, strengths, and new beginnings. So what did you think when I reached out to you? And that's kind of how I positioned our podcast and our talk. Well, I was really excited because I feel like right now is the time for a new beginning. You know, we've had this unbelievable reset that, you know, for those of us in in my early 40s, I've lived this entire life without anything 
close to what just happened over the course of the year happening. And I watched during the pandemic as my friends and my the people in my life really fell into two buckets. There were the people who you know, went internally and just kind of closed down, they shut down. And then there were other people who went externally and really started to ramp up. And it was so interesting to me to see the types of people who did both of those things, not right or wrong, just a different way of handling everything. But I think the one thing that we're all seeing now is we're coming out of it. And to me, there is nothing in front of us but blue sky and opportunity. And for people who've spent this time either internally or externally setting up their plans for what they're going to do next, now is the time to start executing on those plans because people are open to new ideas. They're open to shifts in life, to work-life balance, to flexibility. And I don't know that those things will remain. So I think the important thing is to take advantage of it now and really understand that there is never going to be a time in the near future where we have the kind of opportunity that we have right now. That is such an important point. Yes. And I love your optimism and that positivity. And that also, you know, is just throughout your writing and your book. It's just so important to have that. And I think you're right. There's two groups of people. Some people really found opportunity during this trying past 16 months and other people really just, you know, needed just to take a step back and, and reset. And, and neither is wrong. So I think that's so important that you just shared that. And, and so it's interesting. One thing I really um, like to ask in my podcast interviews is what would you tell your 26-year-old self? And so I had that, obviously, back in my mind as a question for you, but I feel like your whole book kind of addressed that. So you really kind of answered that question in this book because I can relate to you. you. Your kind of start in New York was similar to mine. I started out in publishing, made pennies, had roommates, had crazy apartments and all of that. But, but there's more to it too. It's really about it's a hard time of your life. You're trying to figure out what do I want to do? What's my purpose? Either, you know, mostly in, in a career focus and nobody really prepares you for some of the questions that, that you brought up. So what, what do you think were the most important messages for this kind of set of 20 somethings that can also be applied later on in life, but really just, yeah, what, what, what you looking back, what do you wish you had known then? And maybe it's your whole book, but, but is there one thing? Yeah. So funny because you really touch on this point. I remember coming from college. I went to a small liberal arts college in Tennessee and I moved to New York and, you know, there are a lot of places where universities have 50 or 20 kids who were moving to New York City. There was no one from my class who moved here. And, you know, I've always been a very social person. I love friends. I mean, I had 13 bridesmaids at my wedding. That should give you an indication of how much I love collecting people in my life. And I would call each and every one of them a best friend, and they would assume that they were. So let me, let me just be very clear. I have 13 <laughs> best friends. But I do think that there was just this really interesting moment where I remember sitting in the apartment that I was renting. It was a studio apartment, which for those of you who don't live in New York means there is literally one room <laughs> with a couch that comes into a bed at night. I mean, it's hilarious. And I moved into New York and I remember on a Friday night being downtown, I, the, the apartment was in the West Village and it was so loud on the street and people were having so much fun. And I just remember crying in the apartment and thinking to myself, gosh, I used to have plans every single day. I used to have friends who were everywhere around me. I could call anyone. I could do anything. I could go for a walk at any time of the day. I had friends everywhere. And now I have no one. And it just felt so isolating and so lonely. And at the same time, it also felt like that's kind of how I felt in my career. I loved the job that I was doing. It was frankly my only solace because I didn't know anyone in the city. So I really just spent all of my time at work. It was my social outlet. It was a place that I liked to be, but I didn't think of my job as a career. 
And that I think is something that I would love to go back and tell my 21 year old self, you know, don't just throw your hands in the air and say, I'm going to work and I'm going to get this paycheck and I'm not going to save anything. Really start thinking from day one of your life. What is this going to be for me? Like, how is this going to help me? You're not going to know that answer at the age of 21, but don't just approach it. Like I'm going to take advantage of it and just do whatever I want. Because the bottom line is you need to set yourself up for success from an early age. Hmm. I have a friend whose mother sat him down in high school and he was just, you know, not getting good grades and all this stuff. And she said, listen, I need to talk to you because I don't think you understand you need to get good grades in high school so you go to a good college. You need to go to a good college so you can get a degree in business school and go to a good business school. Because if you do that, then you will set yourself up for success in life. You will be able to get a good job. You will be able to live the life you want to live and provide for your family. And I remember when we had this conversation, I laughed and I said, I do not know one woman who has ever in my entire life said to me, oh yeah, my parents did the same thing for me. Mm. And, you know, I don't know where, you know, who, when when you're listening to this, where you come from, where you have been in your life. So I just want to say to you, at whatever age you are, understand that you set yourself up for success and small things like going into your office and staying on top of negotiations for salaries and asking for the top end of the salary every year, delivering the product that your bosses want. Those things are important because over time, where you start that base salary, what you're getting incrementally every year makes a lot of money. And it makes a huge difference for the people who ask versus the people who don't. That is something I definitely think is so important for young people to hear that negotiating for what you are worth. It's not just negotiating for more because you think everybody should be paid more. It is really knowing what you're worth and, and also working hard <laughs> to, to show that you are worth that. But I thought that was such, that's such an important point that, you, that you're sharing. And it takes courage and confidence. So that's hard too. But yeah, that, that's such a great thing that you, that you just shared and that you also shared in your book. Um, <laughs> Because you did go in after you're working at, at Christie's for a while, which is a very prestigious international auction house. And you felt probably at the time lucky to have that job. I mean, you definitely planned that out. You, you, you went for it. You, you got that job because you, you deserve that job. But when you realized that you weren't getting paid what you were worth or the market rate, how did you muster up the courage to go in and, and ask for that? Well, I think it just came as such a shock. And I say this in the book that I really truly thought that I was working for a place that loved me as much as I loved it. Mm -hmm. And that's also a fundamental mistake that we can make with business, especially at companies that we've been in for a long time or a career that you've worked in the same industry for a long time, especially in the same company, is you truly believe that someone's taking care of you the way that a family member would take care of you. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, a business is a business. And I say in the book, you know, the business only needs to pay you what it's going to take you to show up every day. And until you start challenging that notion, why would they pay you more? At the end of the day, they want to make a profit. And if people are willing to work for a certain wage, then why would they ever offer more if they don't have to? So really for me, I think the courage came from anger. I felt betrayed by my company, but I also felt really angry at myself for just blindly going along and never questioning it and never asking for more and then never pushing for more. So I would not recommend trying to get to the same situation that I got to in that book, which is you find out you're making a third of what everyone else is making and had been 10 years into a career when I realized that. So let's be honest, I've left at this point hundreds of thousands of dollars on the table. You know, if you look at what you could make if you invested that wisely because of compound interest. And so I'm lo- I've left all of this money on the table and I have to make it up. And how do I do that? And so for me, that was, it was a conversation that was not meant to go the way that it meant 
it eventually went, but I walked in and basically just told them that I was leaving with two weeks notice. And at the time I wasn't really leaving. I'd had sort of one conversation with an external company. And it was so interesting because I realized immediately what I was worth because they were willing to give it to me. And then I was angry with myself for having waited that long to have the conversation. So I say to people, you know, start these conversations early in your career, get your manager on your side, understand what it's going to take for you to continue hitting marks, to get raises, to get promotions. You know, you touched on this earlier. I saw this a lot, you know, in the, in the years before the COVID hit where young women were sort of walking in, or I would hear from friends about, you know, someone who was 21 who walked in and was like, I deserve a, a raise right now. And, you know, come in, mm-hmm. coming in with all this gusto. Side note to this, you actually have to do the work to get the race too. Right. You want right. to ask, definitely. You want to push for that top dollar every time, but you also have to understand that the work has to be done. So you don't just get a raise for walking in the door. That's what I always say to people. I'm like, look at your job description. If you're doing your job, that's what the paycheck is. That's your reward. What you yep. want to be thinking about is what you can do above and beyond to get that raise and that promotion that you want. Absolutely. Yep. And I think that's so important for so many people to hear. I I think it's great that young women today have maybe confidence that you and I didn't have maybe in our teens and our 20s and coming out of college. But yeah, you kind of have to walk the talk too. So I'm all about I'm all about that. I will help people as much as I can help them. I love networking. I love helping people, but they have to come to me knowing what they want and and articulating kind of their values. So, so important. Mm -hmm. Um, you touched on a few times something I really want to talk to you about, building a roadmap. And I'm all about really thinking out what one wants and making goals and setting those attainable goals. But you really talk about this idea of building a roadmap. And that's also something I wish I'd worked harder on in my, in my early 20s. So if you can touch on that and your approach to building a roadmap and, and, and your career, for your career and your life. So if you could share some of your thoughts on that. Well, first and foremost, write it in pencil because you never know what's going to happen. And again, if 2020 wasn't an indication, that would be the absolute penultimate in terms of not knowing what's coming. But, you know, a roadmap for me is really a way to do two things. It's to keep focused on the present, but also understand that there's a larger picture, that there's a future in front of me and to be focused on that as well. So, you know, when I write a roadmap, I have these larger overarching goals of things that I want to accomplish in the next sort of five to 10 years. But then I also have the things that I want to accomplish in a year or two. So if you look at my roadmap, I posted this, I think on Instagram a couple of weeks ago about, I keep a notebook with me, especially when I'm writing and I just sold my second book. So I just keep the notebook with me as a real time thing to write down notes or comments or thoughts that I want to explore in the book. And I had written on the cover in the sort of on the first page of it, you know, 2019 to 2020, here we go again. Cause that in my plan was that I was going to write the pr- proposal for my second book and get it going. But then of course, t- the end of 2019 was incredibly busy and I never really got around to it. And the very beginning of 2020 was very busy. And then 2020 COVID hit. And I didn't have it in me to write another book at that point. And so when I wrote the proposal and sold it, which basically happened last week, my new book says I underneath that timeline put 2021, 2022, because I made the mistake of writing it in pen. And I wrote the most confident woman in the room is you because that's my new focus. So in a way, like small roadmaps like that, keep me focused. I might put, you know, a number of speeches I want to give this year, a number of charity auctions that I want to take and all of those things over the, the smaller roadmap. But the larger roadmap really helps me explore what I want to do in life. Is it move and live in a different country? Is it, you know, get my children through school and pay for college and feel great about 
saving and investing. Like all of those things can be in the part of your larger roadmap. But I think it's very important to also just stay focused on the year in front of the year or two in front of you so you don't feel overwhelmed. Definitely. And so, okay, your new book is, is going to be called The Most Confident Woman in the Room. Is that what you just said? The Most Confident Woman in the Room is you. Yeah. That's excellent. So my, cause my next question is <laughs> the confidence element, you know, I think that that's a hard thing to hold on to when you've been through, you know, some trying times and change and shifts in your personal life. And then this whole past kind of 16 months, again, as I said, is a trying time for everybody. So that confidence comes first. It sounds like, right. You, that to really be able to go after what you want and even define what you want. So what are your thoughts around rebuilding confidence for somebody who might've lost it? Um, yeah. Absolutely. And look, the reason that I'm writing this second book is because of that exact thing. I launched a masterclass during in basically mid mid COVID, I would say in August of 2020. And I was just getting an inbound every day of DMs and messages on LinkedIn and email requests to talk about sales or negotiations, public speaking or networking and how to do these things. And I basically decided that I was going to create a sort of four-part masterclass addressing each of these things. And before each of the class classes, I would send a one sheet and ask people to answer a couple of questions. And it would be sort of like, what do you like about sales? What do you not like about sales? What do you like about public speaking? What do you not like about public speaking? And 92 out of the 100 surveys came back and mentioned the word confidence. Mm, yep. And it was always about a lack of confidence. The reason that they couldn't sell is because they didn't have enough confidence to do it. They weren't confident in their public speaking and therefore they didn't put themselves up for it. So it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? You're not going to get better because you don't have the confidence to try in the first place. So I really dug into that. And that's where the, the piece about the most confident woman in the room is you came from and why I wanted to write that. And I think what it really boils down to is, you know, in the first book, I talk a lot about a strike method and having a way to really get your nerves under control in the same way that I take that gavel and slam it down, finding a way to summon strength when you don't feel like you have it and how to really hold on to that and harness it. And in many ways, I think you need to have the same thing in terms of your confidence, you know, almost like a strike method for your confidence, where you create a Teflon shield around yourself mentally and nothing gets in and accept the positive that's already in there. So people's reactions, what you think they're thinking of you, they all stay on the outside of that shield. And whatever you have internally, you mentally think to yourself, like, this is where I'm drawing from. This is where the reserves from. This is where my confidence comes from and staying with that. And so that's really what the second book is going to explore. Sort of being in these situations time and time again, where confidence is taken a hit or isn't there in the first place and how to develop it and how to really get out there and feel it, especially given what we've been through in the past year. Yeah. Yeah. And so public speaking, that is such a great thing to bring up because I had a hard time with public speaking. I had a successful business career. I went to a very competitive business school, came out of that. I, I was public speaking. You had to speak up in class for business school. You had to, I had to give presentations at work. However, I realized when I was offered a job after I'd left my corporate job, which was Google for years, I, I was asked to be a public speaker for a nonprofit. And I can't even tell you the fear that overtook me when I was offered that job. I was like, I can't do it. I'm, I'm not good at speaking to large rooms. And I really had to face that. And 
so it, it was definitely a lack of confidence, but also was a tool that I needed to refine. And I actually put myself out there and I took a Toastmasters class. Toastmasters is an organization that people come together and can either work on their public speaking or just show off their public speaking. It's a really interesting kind of quirky organization. But you just made me think about everything that I made myself, push myself out of that comfort zone to really get comfortable public speaking. And I can't tell you how many people very similar to you and me who had successful you know, careers, have kind of a professional presence, but are petrified of public speaking. So have you talked to many people about this, especially either in the auction world or I know you work with a lot of celebrities. I think celebrities, they're, they're great with acting, but some celebrities hate public speaking. This is a real problem. Absolutely. And it's you know, they say that public speaking second only to death is the most feared thing in the entire world. Right. Like to say when I'm teaching yes. public speaking classes, look, it's a great unifier. Every single person in the world has the same fear. It's death and then public speaking. And it is one of those things that really stops people in their tracks. And people always ask me because I actually love public speaking. I love getting on stage with a microphone and having fun with no script and just kind of going to town on a crowd. People always ask, how did you learn to do that? And the answer is practice. So what you've said is exactly what you need to do to be a better public speaker. You have to practice. You have to put yourself out there and make yourself do it. And you also have to put yourself on camera. Get on an mm -hmm. iPhone. Watch what you look like on camera. Look at the nervous ticks. Force yourself to understand what you look like to other people. Swallow your pride. And then if you are a really bad public speaker, make yourself do something crazy, like do an Instagram live or something like mm -hmm. that, just to get used to getting over the nerves. Because the nerves are really what make people feel like they're not good public speakers. There was a really interesting article that was written about they asked basically a person who's a rock star and a person who's just a terrible public speaker what the different, they sort of said, you know, what is it about public speaking that you don't like? And the person who's a terrible public speaker was like, I hate right before I get on stage, I get so nauseous. My whole body starts shaking. My fingers start shaking. My face starts shaking. My, I, like, well, I want to throw up and then I want to die. And then <laughs> they said to the rock star, like, tell me about your experience right before you go on, on stage. Like, what do you, what do you feel like? Oh man, I love it. The energy I get, the adrenaline rush, my fingers start tingling. I feel wobbly. I feel like crazy. I feel out of control. And I take that energy onto the stage. It's exactly the same thing. Yeah. They're describing exactly the same thing, but one of them has practice and understands how to harness it. And one of them doesn't have enough practice and fears it and can't get over it. So I would honestly tell you that the easiest way to get over a fear of public speaking is to just do it as much as possible. Take a Toastmasters class. Get up at every single meeting and ask a question. You know, I say to people, if you're on Zoom and there is a meeting, have a question in there. Even if it makes everyone want to die because it's minute 29 and you're all on Zoom, do it anyway. Mm -hmm. um, the point is the more you do it, and as we come back to in real life, raise your hand in that crowded room of 20 people and ask a question. Make yourself do it. Because once you do it, you won't fear it. And that's when you'll get good. Yeah. Such good tips. And it really comes back to just pushing yourself, like mm -hmm. just getting and knowing that it's it's attainable. So as you said, these are very simple tools. If you can't find a Toastmasters class, like you said, use Instagram, use your own video, use your family. I remember asking friends to just sit and listen to me. And um, that was so great, you know, just to have people that, that would do that. And if your friend won't listen, have your dog listen. Mm -hmm. There are ways to make this doable, but I, that's such a great tool to boost your confidence and get yourself out there. And even if you're not going to be, you know, on stage, as an auctioneer, or you're not going to be a public speaker. It's just, I think that's so helpful just to get your confidence back up and get out there for whatever, whatever you want to do. 
Yeah. I mean, it's funny because I spend so much time on stage as a charity auctioneer, but as you can imagine, to take an, a charity auction, I'm usually backstage watching other people speak. And I probably over the course of a calendar year would, you know, if, if there were not a global pandemic, for instance, if this was just a, a year, a normal year, I would probably see between, I don't know, let's say there are three per night. So let's say I've seen 150 people speak over the course of the year. Every year I could probably pinpoint six or seven people who were good public speakers. Mm. And then I could also pinpoint 25 who were terrible public speakers, and then most people are somewhere in between. So it's not that you have to be the best, but to be passable is not that difficult. It just takes practice. Yes. Very good point. So and this masterclass, are you continuing to do this? Is it an ongoing thing or was it something you just did during the past year? Yeah, no, I, it's been ongoing. I think during the pandemic, it was a lot easier because most people were at their computers all the time and now people have more things to do. So I did one last night actually on how to write and sell a book because I find that anytime there is an inbound of messages, questions, DMs, it usually means there's a market and therefore there's some white space, you might as well fill it. And that's what the masterclass sort of started as. And so anytime I start getting a lot of questions about a particular thing, I typically will sit down and write a curriculum and then launch a masterclass, which is basically like 45 to 50 minute presentation and then a couple of interactive uh, interactive moments. And then we do Q&A for half an hour. So it's been really fun. I've really, really enjoyed it. And I've met some amazing people along the way. I think that would be so valuable. I have two more questions for you. I want to talk about the power of community. And I know that this is something that you think is so important too, like having a community and whether it's a community to network in or supportive community. Monumental Me is really all about community. And some people have great networks already at alma maters who have programs that they can tap into. But we also are focusing on women who don't have that built-in community. So if you can just talk to your thoughts on the power of community, so I'm not you know, putting words in your mouth, but also kind of how people can tap into building their own community. Well, in the last chapter of the book, I talk about this networking breakfast. So if you do not have a community, this is a very easy way to get one. I started the networking breakfast with a woman who I had had a rival job with for about 10 years. She worked at the other big auction house in New York. And although we never met, she was kind of my rival. She always laughs when I say that because I don't think she felt the same way, but there we are. <laughs> but Courtney and I met after she'd left Sotheby's, which was the big rival of Christie's. And we met at an auction year's I think it was three or four years later, and we started talking. We'd had so many shared experiences, but then we realized as we were talking and became friends that we had a lot of friends that the other person didn't know. So we decided to start a networking breakfast where she would bring five people that that I didn't know, and I would do the same. And so immediately right there, there were five new people in my network because I didn't know Courtney's friends who arrived. And then it was this, just this incredible moment where I thought it was going to be networking, networking meaning work-related, but of course, there were 12 women seated at a table. And we just asked the simple question, what are you working on? That could be your life, that could be job, it could be whatever you wanted it to be. And wow, did people dive in immediately. You know, I think the first person started talking about IVF. She was going through IVF. It hadn't worked. She was crying. Another woman across the table was like, I've already been through it. There was another woman who had been recently divorced. There was someone who was about to get divorced. So we weren't even touching on work for the first hour. It was just sharing of common experiences of life experiences of children, of no children. And there was kind of support in 12 people for everyone. And that was the beginning of a networking breakfast that spanned now six years. We continue to have it. We had it during Zoom. Courtney, my, my 
counterpart in this has been in Costa Rica for the past year, but we did a couple of Zoom ones before. She'll be coming back in this fall and we're going to start them up again in person. And it's just been an amazing way to meet new people because every time we have one, we just say to people, like, if you run into somebody who's at a crossroads or you just think that someone we should meet, bring them to the breakfast. And we end up just having about 25 people in person every single time. And the question is always the same. And it's been really amazing to have this community of women. You know, when I told everyone that I was writing the book, they were the first people to offer book parties. They were the first people to offer contacts. When I needed case studies for women in the book and I didn't have enough women to fill those case study positions, I went out to that group and asked them to put me in touch with the most powerful woman they'd ever met in their life. And so I just feel like community surrounding yourself with people who are supportive of you is such an incredible gift that you can give to yourself. But in addition to that, also remember that there are some people who are struggling. A lot of people, especially women, will be like, oh, this woman, you know, she isn't nice and I don't like her and da da da. da. And I always think the first thing I think is the person's just insecure. They mm-hmm. act that way because you have something they don't or they want something that you have that they have not been able to figure out how to get. So extend a hand backwards. It doesn't mean that it's competition. It just means that you're helping out somebody who might not be in the same place you are. And that's what community is about, being supported and lifting other people up. Absolutely. And and people really want to connect first and then also help each other. Mm-hmm. So I, I really do. Even that person who might, you know, feel cold at first, I think that's such a good point that you just brought up. And I I was told this years ago, but if you are in a situation where you want to reach out and connect with this person, like it's usually more about them if they're cold and prickly. It's not really about you. So yeah. Super important. These are such um, great points and wise words. You had such great experience. So one last question for you. Yes, that I always like to ask. So you are a very busy woman. You have three children. You have a husband. You have many friends. You talk about the importance of running and exercising and resetting. But what else do you really do for yourself to fill your cup and to keep going? You know, I think all of those things combined keep me filled and and keep my my spirit going. I had a, a woman named Allie Love, who's a Peloton instructor, on my my. Instagram live that I started during COVID. And I said to her, you know, it must be really difficult to be constantly supporting people when we're in the middle of a global pandemic and everyone's trapped at home and everyone is so sad and you have to get on this bike every day and motivate people. And she said something that really was so true that I can only say that I wish I had learned. I wish I'd said it first because it's exactly how I feel. She was like, some people feel like you have to go to a spa and be sitting in a bathrobe sipping tea to relax and rejuvenate. She's like, my cup is full when I am on a bike motivating people. That's where I get my energy. And that's how I feel too. Running, exercising, being with my friends and my family, meeting new people, like all of these things together fill me up. And I don't actually need anything more than that. I think that's what keeps me going and that's what keeps me motivated. So as long as I have my sort of core group, my core community and my family close, then that's really all I need. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you so much, Lydia, for joining us. This was such a pleasure talking to you. You too. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure. For more information or to join our community, visit our website at monumentalme.com or follow us on Instagram at monumentalme.we. And if you have any suggestions for interviews, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at info at monumentalme.com. Thank you.